You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Then the room's ambiance seemed to shift and go a touch dark. Literally so, with the entrance of two men dressed entirely in black. Ebony suits, shirts, shoes. Black neckties and belts. Holmes wondered idly if their undergarments and pocket handkerchiefs had been dyed to match. Linda, following his gaze, made a small noise that might have been a curse, instantly stifled. The two men at the entrance to the ballroom looked large and implacable and out of place amidst the bright colors and happy noise. The one in the new-looking suit, older, larger, and standing slightly to the fore, was clearly the other's trophy, proud proof that the junior man was entering a new and influential world. The foreigners among the guests looked somewhat puzzled. The Italians looked either approving or uneasy. Some among the latter found reason to fade back into the room. Cole appeared at his wife's elbow. The porters exchanged an eloquent and resolute glance, then donned brittle smiles of social cordiality to step down from the low stage and move towards the entrance. Capitano Francoletti and the Marquess of Selwick had arrived, dressed in the fashion of their fascist hero, Benito Mussolini. Laurie R. King is the best-selling author of 16 Mary Russell Mysteries, five contemporary novels, including Kate Martinelli, the Stuyvesant Grey novels, and the acclaimed A Darker Place, Folly, Calipia's Daughter, Keeping Watch and Lockdown. Her new novel is Island of the Mad. Thank you for joining me, Lori. I am very happy to be here. Not Britain, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> No, 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 no. This is this book is so much fun. We find our heroine, Mary Russell, and Sherlock Holmes in the first instant, one of the most engaging and gripping openings I've ever read. This book has a lot of humor in it, and you managed to do that without a lot of jokes. It's just, but it made me laugh the whole way through. Did you deliberately do that, or did that just kind of emerge from your mood? Oh, the mood, the mood, yes. <clears throat> the mood of 2017 was <laughs> distinctive, shall we say. Yes. Yeah, I was actually supposed to write a very different novel last year. Um, I had made a, an agreement, and, you know, in the publishing world, you tend to have contracts, and you tend to talk long in advance with your editor about what you're doing in a year or two years or however Many and and I had um, I I was agreed to write a book set in the Tower of London, <laughs> and and then and then we had this election, <laughs> and then it became very obvious that 2017 was going to be a very dark year in so many ways, and I thought you know the last thing I can manage is to live in a life in a dark year, and in my fiction in a dark place and I just couldn't face it. I just couldn't face the Tower of London <laughs> in 2017. And so I, I, I talked to my editor and I said, if I do this, you're going to have to lock me up. <laughs> and she said, okay, well, but what can we do? And I said, well, I, what, if I, what if I still write a Russell? Because that's what they were aiming at. But if I make it something that's maybe instead of just dark, we'll have dark humor in it. And she said, hey, it works for me. <laughs> so I, I kind of looked around at what I had been thinking of doing. And, you know, when you're doing a series, you tend to have a number of possibilities, both in theme and in place that you're thinking of for the future. So I, I, I thought, well, one of the ones that I wanted to write was Istanbul, which, you know, Turkey's also having its own problems <laughs> at the moment. So I thought maybe that wasn't a very good time to go there for research. Right, um, yeah, not a felicitous place to Well, no, it's, well, it's, yeah, it's debatable. But it, it, at any rate, I decided it was, I wasn't feeling quite that brave and 
indomitable as Mary Russell. Um, so I thought instead, well, what, what if we sort of cross the Adriatic and go to Venice instead, which I intended to do two or three books down the line. And obviously, when you're writing a book, you have to go there, right? Oh, absolutely. So I, I had to go. I had been there before. I had been to Venice before, but um, a while back. And so I, I went there and made appointments for various um, guides and tours and that kind of thing of my research places. At this point, did you know what the plot of the book was yet? No. Okay. No, 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 no. No, because what I do when I choose a time and place, mm -hmm. and the Russell and Holmes series, of course, is set in the 20s for the most part. And right. so each time I go someplace, be it San Francisco or Japan or you name it, one of the first things I do is look at um, the political and economic situation, what's going on there mm -hmm. at the time. And the next one is who's there, because I like to work the books into the existing cast of characters so I don't have to make up everybody mm -hmm. I, I bring in you know so when I'm writing San Francisco I, I was pleased to find that Dashiell Hammett was there for example and so Dashiell Hammett walks through the book in a number of places but with this one I no sooner um, scratched my head and thought okay what's going on in Venice in 1925 when I think oh dear <laughs> oops <laughs> oh dear Having wanted to get away from dark politics um, for my writing year of 2017, I then find that um, 20, that 1925 is the year in which Benito Mussolini has declared himself dictator of Italy. Which, okay. Which, which sort of opened a number of cans of dark worms <laughs> and cockroaches and everything else running across my, my, my pages. Um, but then I thought, Maybe, maybe I can deal with this because in some ways Venice has always been um, a retreat from the world. That's mm -hmm. why Venice is there. That's, Venice started as a, a place of refuge that people could crawl off to when the various countries around the, the, the Adriatic were having wars. And as refugees, they could take place on these little swampy islands out in the middle of the lagoon. And that's, that's how Venice came to be. And so it was always a place where the odds and ends of society would retreat. So no less in the 20s than any other time. And, um, and, and that basically is the bottom line of the book, is you have these odds and ends of people from all over. You have the reality of um, Mussolini's Italy in the 20s coming to the fore. And you have Russell and Holmes sort of stumbling into the midst of it and trying to figure out, in this case, um, where this particular woman has gone. They, they're off searching for a missing person who was last seen on an outing from Bedlam in, in, in London. <laughs> so, so introducing no Bedlam there. early on, yes. Um, and and that's that's the basis of the book. You have the Lido Society, which is the sparkling aristocrats and very wealthy individuals from all over. You have Cole Porter, who, who with his wife hired various palazzos during the 20s and had their wild holidays during the summers. And at the same time, you have black shirts wandering around. So... Guess who the bad guys in the book are. <laughs> <laughs> now, no spoilers here. <laughs> now, you mentioned Bedlam, and this is the very famous madhouse in London. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I first encountered that, and I, I had visions of something along the lines of Hieronymus Bosch or, you know, Dolly, when some very demonic underworld vision of, of a... And the asylum, and I thought you did a fantastic job uh, of a creating the terror <laughs> of being checked into an asylum, which is truly scary when you're not mad. Uh, but also in, in creating Bedlam itself as a surprising place. Did you uh, visit Bedlam, the actual uh, site? There are there are now two sites. There's 
Bethlehem Royal Hospital is still in existence, although it's mm-hmm. in the other end of London now. It's in South London. And the Bedlam, or Bethlehem, the asylum of the 20s and 30s, up, up until 1930, is now the Imperial War Museum. That's the that's the, the building was given over to the Imperial War Museum, which is a nice touch there. Yes. Yeah. But so yes, I've been to both of them. Um, but yes, it was a fascinating thing that the image that you have of Bedlam, which is of chained inmates and the wealthy wandering through and paying a coin to watch the antics of the insane, um, was very much a thing of the pre. 19th century. Then in the 19th century, there was a sea change in how the mad were treated. That there was a distinction made between the criminally insane and people who could benefit from regular schedules, regular meals, uh, and a roof over their head. And throughout the 19th century, this sort of Dickensian image of madhouses faded a lot in Bedlam, at any rate. The county museums were quite another matter. They were where the poor were tossed for housing, and they were pretty much (laughs) what Hogarth talked about in the 17th century. But... um, Bedlam was always, uh, by this stage in the 19th century, Bedlam was a place of the sort of middle-class mad. Um, the, the painters and politicians and governesses who were driven mad by their charges <laughs> and people who couldn't quite afford to keep um, their mad in, in the family attic in their country house but who were too well off to be forced to dump them on into a county asylum. So you have this really interesting mix of people at Bedlam um, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, Richard Dad, the painter, was there. And mm, yeah, he did amazing work about a vision of the fairies, I yes. believe. That was the, fa- <laughs> the fairy really feller's master stroke was yes, yes, a was. terrifying yeah. <laughs> piece of art. Yeah, and and you had anyway. There were various artists and mm-hmm. the rest of them who who were in Bedlam, and you you found that there under that kind of treatment, um, the talking cure, the regular meals, the therapeutic work that you found for them to do, whether it was gardening or needlework, um, that a, a lot of people, believe it or not, actually got better. Shocking. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you mean it doesn't work better than just tossing them out into the streets with no food, no jobs, nothing to do except for just starve? Funny thing, that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that in in some ways, that it, at this period, before you find electroshock therapy and um, heavy-duty therapeutic drugs came in, um, a madhouse could actually be an asylum. Mm. And it's nice to think that it would be as simple as that, and it obviously wasn't for everyone. There were some who were violent, some needed to be changed, some needed to be done, you know, put, put in safe places. But for an awful lot of the sort of neurotic mad... This this was home. This was a, a refuge that they could go to and regain their composure. I, I think a lot of people who read your descriptions of Bedlam will think that it sounds a quite a bit more modern and humane than... Uh, than the, modern and humane ones, right. <laughs> than yes, the modern and humane versions <laughs> of the 21st century or winding things back. You mentioned Dickensian, and I thought you made it a, a wonderful and terrifying... Uh, observation about the enduring popularity of Dickens in that uh, people, some people think that that's a pretty good version way to run things in the the most terrible excesses that he describes. Yeah, although I think a lot of what he describes were not necessarily common at the time, but they mm-hmm. were more from his past and his childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he was 
He he was writing dramatic fiction, not uh, direct reports. Yeah, no, he wasn't writing uh, nonfiction. Nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, we've yet. strived to bright. We've tried to change that, haven't we? <laughs> Here in the modern age, mm-hmm. we, we can make the Dickensian a science. <laughs> yeah, I I thought that uh, I love the. Uh, the repartee between Holmes and also this is something that you've done in the books uh, between uh, the repartee between uh, Holmes and Russell is super wonderful and really fun. You you are having a little more fun than usual with this with that aspect in this book, weren't you? In some ways, this was a, it was indeed an escape from twenty seventeen. So yes, um, part part of it I think may be that I I was super busy with a lot of different things and. I wrote the the first draft of this in a much more compressed time frame than usual. So mm. it was a much more immersive experience for me as a writer than I'm accustomed to. Usually I I write a first draft in two or three months, and then the rewrite is six months, that sort of thing. This one, I think I wrote the first draft in less than two months. Um so it it meant that I was really there in a way that uh, I, I'm not always. So mm. it was a nice retreat, and I could really get into the characters in, in a very intensive way. You know, one of the things uh, that I thought was was so so much fun was you, and this is something I think you really excel at is the Zelig effect, and just like kind of. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. Bringing in all of these people, I, I loved your observation about Emily Dickinson and her poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I Russell all, often says things that I don't necessarily agree with, but she can be rude about people in in some some ways that it's very believable for her. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, yeah. She says rude things about Emily Dickinson's poetry that. Um, not everyone would agree with, no. But but yeah, it seemed to really catch it. You know, uh, one of the things you were talking about was uh, the artists uh, roaming the halls of uh, Bedlam. And I think it's interesting to me that how much uh, we as a culture have for a long time and really continue to pretty much assume that anybody who's either personally or professionally involved in art, um, the the more that they are, the closer they are to some kind of mental instability, yay, nay, madness. Uh, and you expect me to comment on that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've never been in a mental hospital, Rick. <laughs> I, no. no, but I think it's an interesting uh, uh, thought that we... The way that we we draw those two together, it's natural. It's a intuition, I think, and it's something that a lot an intuition that we're not always aware of. It's it, yeah. It's one of those truisms that you're not quite sure how how much is true and how much is the the the, the sort of ism side of things. That um, are are artists mad? No. Are some artists mad? Yes. Are some mad people artists? Yes. Are all mad people artists? No. <laughs> um, but I think that when you find someone whose art is central to their lives, if they are unbalanced to begin with, then it tends to <laughs> become focused in the art. Um, so you have someone like Richard Dad, who whose art is both genius and really quite lunatic. Mm-hmm. Or Mr. Darger, if you recall that. He was a, a, a fellow who for 40 years worked as a janitor, and they discovered at the end of his life a huge and immense and very detailed graphic novel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Some people have much to escape from, don't they? <laughs> I, I, I think that. <laughs> That's the case. Uh, one of the things that comes to the forefront in this novel is uh, Holmes and uh, Russell's relationship a little bit, in that the 
they they ponder independently the the age difference and how much it matters to them, how much it matters to others. And I think you do a good job of exploring that in a way that is both informed and all of the characters, but also kind of looks forward in a sense. Yeah, the one of the odd things about the series is that although there's, what did we say, 15 different novels and then a collection of stories, is the amount of time that actually has passed since the first ones is relatively short. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first one was 10 years before, but most of them are compressed into, you know, like a five or six year period. So between her coming of age in 1921 and this book mm-hmm. uh, is a, a relatively short time. They've only been married for four years. Right. And it's about at that time when they are beginning to think about it as a long-term, I won't use the word affair, but <laughs> a long-term arrangement. A commitment um, in going with the yeah, theme of the novel. Yeah, and what, what is it that we want to do as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a partnership? So, yes, there's, there is that. There's also the fact that this book, more than a number of the others, uh, throws them together. I mean, they're they're together for pretty much the whole book, except for brief periods where Russell goes um, undercover into into Bedlam, um, and then they go separate ways when they're in Venice, but they come back to the same place every night. So they are together in day to day, as it hasn't always been. To the pained complaint of many readers, they. <laughs> Get tired of reading just Russell, because they're, the characters are fun when they snipe and insult each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a lot of fun with that. Do you read your own dialogue aloud when you're writing it? Are you uh, doing the uh, uh, Conan author used to? I. Robert E. Howard type in and shout out what he was writing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't <laughs> shout it out. I I do occasionally find myself making the gestures that go with certain. Oh, how interesting! Att- when I, when I'm when I'm trying to organize a sentence, a line or or two of dialogue, that you have to choose where you're going to pause for um, a punctuation break or a hand gesture or putting a cup down or a laughter or whatever it is you have to choose in the sentence and sometimes I will find myself actually doing that wow that is so interesting (laughs) (laughs) yes the the sorts of ways you can blackmail a writer if you put a camera in their study I love the Cole Porter aspect of this book and so I'm wondering who what was your favorite biography of him or what was your favorite book by him about him you're asking me for name of like I can never remember my own names much <laughs> I said yeah there's a, there's a couple of there's a couple of biographies of him um <laughs> I, I'd have to look it up um well, then talk about just uh, researching him. Once you discovered, were you pleased to to discover that uh, he was going to become part of the story? And was he always this much of the story as he is? I think I discovered early on that he had spent time in Venice. It's probably something I knew from elsewhere because he, uh, all of all of the real-life characters of the 20s tended to be interrelated. So mm-hmm. <laughs> if you know one group of blue bloods out, for, out of England, then you probably know their brothers in America and Europe <laughs> as well. Um, but yeah, I was aware that he was in in Venice on and off. They lived in Paris. Um, but I I was pleased to find that he, the 1925 was indeed one of the years that he spent in Venice. And it took me a while to to track down which house he had rented, um, partly because different biographies say different things. And so, Ooh. for example, you're reading Duff Cooper's autobiography, and he has 
them living in a house other than Karazeniko in 1925. Well, do we go with the biographies based on research, or do we go with Duff Cooper's memories? And so I decided to go with the others because I like Karazeniko. <laughs> it was a great house that I could write about. Uh, one of the things that I think you do really well is uh, immerse us in the places that you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bedlam in Venice. <clears throat> and, and now Venice is a city that has been written about quite a bit. And I'm wondering if you, how you approached that with some, if you, with some trepidation, <laughs> or you just said, yeah. are there? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not the only author who writes off the expenses for a trip. <laughs> um, yeah, I, there are some places that I write, especially in the Russell and Holmes series, which is historical. Um, there are some places that I write about that I know fairly well. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, if it's a place that Russell also knows, I I don't tend to write a lot of description because mm-hmm. a- any more than you would write a description about getting from here to the market and back, which mm-hmm. is something that you have done so often that it's not really visible. Um, but when you go to a new place, and for Russell and Holmes, Venice is a relatively new place. She's been there before. And and so is he under various mysterious circumstances. Um they are seeing it as an outsider, which allows me to look at it as an outsider and to describe things that normally I wouldn't. I mean, mm. if I lived in Venice, I wouldn't much talk about the technique of the gondolier because it's just a way of getting across a canal. Whereas if you are coming from Oxford or England, as Russell is, you would notice the technique of the gondolier because it isn't the, what looks on the surface to be the technique a similar technique that you use in punting. I mean, you're both standing up, you're both using a long wooden thing to steer a boat, but the actual techniques are very different. One is punting and one is rowing. So um, it enables me to talk about it in ways that that she would notice, that, um, that I, I can describe. I thought that was a describe. really fascinating <laughs> discussion. Really, that really, I really enjoyed that. And I think, too, uh, that your, as I say, your description of Bedlam is, is really wonderful. That, and it's interesting. I was in the, both places are described to a certain extent by virtue of the people who inhabit them. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, in that, I think of Venice, I just think of the, the Cole Porter, uh, the parties and, and mm-hmm. the... the uh, Bright young things flitting about the so and in Bedlam we have the people who inhabit it who are not as terrifying as as you expect. So, I'm um, talking about describing a place by virtue of the people who are there. Yeah, I think that the um, it's especially comes into focus in a place like Venice because mm-hmm. you you have such an extreme of the the working-class Venetians who, in fact, wouldn't speak Italian among themselves, they would speak Venetian. I didn't put their dialogue into Venetian because it was just too complicated. I thought, I, I'm verisimilitude is one thing, but I'm just going to let them speak Italian. So <laughs> it's okay. Because uh, otherwise I'd have constant letters from people saying you spelled those Italian words incorrectly. Ah. So I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But... Um, so you have the, the working class Venetians, such as the the young woman who takes um, Russell around to buy clothing, mm-hmm. such as the gondoliers, um, so forth and so on. And then you have these masses of visitors who come in and just generate huge quantities of money for the Italian economy, <laughs> which indeed is the reason why... Um, the, the fascists put up with them at the time. Not that they enjoyed having them there necessarily, but they they pumped millions of dollars, pounds, francs, and Deutschmarks into the into the Italian economy. So you you let them do pretty much what they wanted, and especially during the summertime, which is a tend 
for some reason, that's when the tourists tended to go to, to, to Venice. Summertime is not exactly the most appealing time in Venice, but that's all right. I would imagine it's relatively hot. Hot and smelly and a lot of mosquitoes. <laughs> but I think that uh, one of the things I like, I, I've read a number of books said, in, in fiction and nonfiction, said in the, the 30s and, and 20s and 30s in Europe. And, and one of the things I find really interesting, and we see it in this book, and I remember reading a book about, uh, it was a book about autism, and they talked about Asperger and being in Austria in the 30s. And I thought that the, the way that fascism uh, you know, nationalism is transformed in fascism in the way, you know, fanaticism, all that stuff is, it's really interesting and subtle. And to see it happen in this book is extremely terrifying. And mm -hmm. I, not without a good deal of relevance, much to my regret. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this is one of those areas where a year ago, I, I was posting a lot of um, blog things and Facebook things uh, that were about politics because I'm a, uh, you know, I mean, I'm an American and I'm a Californian and I'm a woman and I have a voice. And I, I, I stopped um, unrelated to, but after someone had said flat out on there, shut up and keep writing. Um, it's always a debate about whether or not a writer or an artist is allowed to have, or a sports person, mm. is allowed to have a voice when it comes to politics, or whether you are, you should limit yourself to what it is that you're doing. Um, I, I think that, yes, we have a responsibility to raise our voice, and we can do that in a number of ways. Um, Island of the Mad is one of those ways. <laughs> Because, yes, um, I was struck and fascinated and deeply troubled by the parallels between the rise of Italian fascism and Benito Mussolini and what we are seeing now. That is the play on uh, fears that give rise to extreme nationalism, the... Um, the ease with which people slip into the us and them mind, um, and how very much um, the, the two men have similarities in that Mussolini really wasn't devoted to any particular uh, flavor of politics. He was interested in power. And he went from being, you know, a communist and a socialist and a nationalist and a this, until he ended up in the in the burgeoning fascist party, which was small enough that it could give him a position of greater authority than he would have been able to in any of the other parties. So he found his voice literally among the fascists. And, um, and rode them to power. On the other hand, they were also riding him. And in 1925, he had no particular interest in declaring himself dictator. And they flat out said that if he didn't do it, they would get rid of him and take over the country on their own. <laughs> well, I mean, the parallels are so striking between him and what we've seen in the last 18 months um I, you know you can't you can't get around it you don't have to make this stuff up you just write it down and it's terrifying all in and all it's a it's a ready to build horror story i not only can you you know just have to write it down i actually toned it down considerably because it was the parallels were so obvious mm. and so blatant one of the things I think... I, <laughs> and and I, I thought, nobody's going to believe this. Everyone is going to think that Laurie King is working on an agenda. And, and so I, you know, I have to dismiss it. But in fact, uh, I, I distinctly toned down 
Oh, the really? parallels, yeah. That's even more scary. You know, one of the things... <laughs> Lock your doors, Rick. <laughs> I, I have started doing that. One of the things that I, I thought found really interesting, too, was the way that this... We like to think of Britain not as the island of the mad um, until Brexit, but... Uh, <laughs> the But as you know, a place... Of, where democracy grew up and flowered. It's the birthplace of, not the place of, of uh, Oswald mm. Mosley, and I've got to get, this is a, a, such a wonderful name, Roth Beryl Lipton Roman. <laughs> isn't, isn't that double-barrel name of hers? Isn't <laughs> so yeah. tell us about this real person who shows up in your book. Yeah, she she herself doesn't, but she's mention is made of her because she is the um, original um, fascist in Britain. Um, she started this fascist party because what happened was that she she had such a um, satisfying I want to say a good time, but a satisfying time during the First World War <laughs> of that was it being the first time that she'd ever had any kind of authority and freedom um, as a, I, I think she was an ambulance driver. Mm. Um, that when she went home, life was very unsatisfying. Well, this was a common experience um, among especially the upper class and um, blue bloods uh, who suddenly saw an outside world and suddenly saw that they maybe could do something other than catch themselves a man and raise two children. Um, And so Rotha, um, Beryl hyphen hyphen, um, convinced her mother to back her on a sort of adult version of the Boy Scouts and, um, and started this project of what, what was essentially fascism in Britain. Because she wasn't the most appealing person when it came to um, convincing the masses, her particular branch of the, of the movement died out. And, but a few years later... Um, Oswald Mosley came on the scene, started a slightly different branch of fascism in Britain. And and his seriously flirted for a while with being a real force in British politics. Um, and it was appealing in a, in a way that we are seeing today. Mm. That is, there's no questions. Um, everything is very clear-cut. We are good. And the rest of the world is wicked and should be trodden underfoot. <laughs> and um, and they, you know, could link up with people like Herr Hitler when he came up. Um, and it wasn't until Britain started to branch away from um, the, the the German experiment that questions were raised about whether Oswald Mosley was really what we wanted. <laughs> and I like, too, you mentioned briefly Churchill, who was all over the place yeah. at that point in time. We always, yeah. again, we, we think of him as he well was in our darkest hour, but Churchill, especially if you read about his early years, he sounds alarmingly like, like somebody you don't want. He he has a sea change, but yeah, I think he had a sea change every few years. And <laughs> yeah. He would become this, and then he'd become that, and he was never quite you know accused of of treason or. But you know, there were a number of times where people were really shaking their heads, very very firmly at the thought of him being given any more power. But yeah, in the in the mid twenties, he was very much in favor of of uh, the Mussolini's politics. He thought it was great for the Italians, because the Italians needed a firm hand. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much everybody outside of this room does <laughs> to a certain extent. I think that's <laughs> the general consensus in any given room in any given land. <laughs> um, one of the things I want to get back to Cole Porter, I think you do a really great job of creating his character. And you have a lot of fun with him because we think of him, you know, of all his kind of frothy hits. And 
unless you read, have read a lot about him, you don't think so much about a guy who's a super accomplished musician, brilliant lyricist, mm -hmm. and not, uh, but just doesn't want to <laughs> make really depressing music. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, that's one of the one of the areas that I do my Zelig thing with because Holmes actually. <laughs> I love influences this. influences uh, Cole Porter in ways that um, have have a lot of long term <laughs> repercussions. Cole Porter was fascinating because he he came from a very wealthy family. Um, he got involved in music when he was an undergraduate. Wrote a, a vast collection of fight songs, football fight songs, when he was an undergraduate. Um, met the woman, Linda, who became his wife, who was a divorcee, whose husband had beat her, and so she was a little fragile about men in general. Um, Porter was gay. He was unashamedly gay. Linda knew it from the beginning. Um, they, but they loved each other. They were, she was the love of his life and vice versa. And I find it fascinating, their ins the insight that you can get into human relationships when you look at that kind of marriage is, you know, they were happy together. Um, would she have been happier if he had been wired to respond to her, if he had been interested in children? She might have been. Um, that's kind of where, I don't know if you saw the movie with um, Ashley Judd and... and um, Kevin Klein. Kevin Klein. Yeah, um, yeah, and that was an amazingly good movie. Yeah, it was very good. It, it tended to sort of skirt the edges of that a bit, but, um, but you know, there's no doubt that that's that's what the marriage was based on. Was he was gay when it came to came to physicality and intensely associated with her when it came to his emotional life. So um, whether you know whether that would have proved out in the long run had he ever found a man who he could be that emotionally attached to is debatable but since it never happened you know that's what the marriage was but his his um life at in 1925 was sort of on the cusp because he just had the experience of a flop he and his uh, his longtime friend um, from from college, um, Gerald Murphy, had backed this um, this play in a ballet in, um, in in New York, and it hadn't really gone anywhere. So at in 1925, Porter was thinking of himself as somebody who really just didn't need to go to all the effort of doing Broadway plays. <laughs> And music was a lovely thing to sit around the piano with your friends and sing and make ditties, and then just, that was it. So I thought it would be kind of fun to have this other person come in and say, maybe you could do things with your songs that you <laughs> might not have thought of otherwise. And when you look at Cole Porter songs, they have a very strong thread of darkness and commitment and passion to them. Um, you mentioned the title. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and uh, there's... Um, I get a kick out of you, not necessarily what yeah. was intended. Yeah, that whether or not that story is actually true um, is really kind of beside the point, but mm -hmm. the idea that Cole Porter would write, I get a kick out of you, after having been beaten badly by an offended trucker uh, to, at whom he, to whom he made a pass... I mean, it's a it's a brilliant story, even if it isn't true, because that's the kind of thing that Cole Porter was doing. Was he would write these light, utterly singable, you know, what the the earworms of the twenties and thirties, um, that um, that on the surface were lovely and sparkling, and and then when you look down underneath, there's a lot of heavy duty emotion going on there. I'm thinking of Werewolves of London <laughs> and Warren Zevon, who might have been kind of a soulmate <laughs> in that regard. Um, one of the things that you quote Porter as a gay character, and I think you do a really interesting examination and timely examination of sexuality in this book. 
Yeah, and again, it's something that you see, you, you can't really escape in talking about a book set in Venice in the 20s, that because you had all these people who were coming over for holiday, and one of the things about holiday is that the restraints of home are no longer there. So you have a certain amount of freedom among the Lido set that, um, that, that you wouldn't necessarily find if you were in New York or London. Um, which is both good and bad, but opens up a lot of areas of discussion in the book and, and between Russell and Holmes. I mean, this is, as I said, they've been married for four years and um, certain discussions are going on about what do you want to do long term and do you, are you really happy with being saddled with an older man? Russell says, well, yeah, why not? <laughs> I love the insights that um, I have to ask, is there like a, somebody you know with a new child in your life? A new child? Yes, I, in that because there are some wonderful and, and I think extreme scene experience that one would feels experience-driven scenes of trying to talk to somebody with a baby. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I think anyone who's been a, a mother knows the impossibility of carrying on a normal conversation. But yes, yes. Um, there's there's not too much doubt by the end of the book that Russell is not cut out to be a mom. <laughs> very happy with that. Thank you very much. Uh, and I remember, boy, when I was like twelve years old, we had a, a little. Boston Whaler with a, about a 35 horsepower motor and we get out to Lake Havasu and I I made about I think I tried about three times to water ski it just <laughs> did not work for me it requires a, a balance sense of balance that I've actually learned I can medically lack <laughs> that, that said, I thought I, I I love the way that you do that. That that is <laughs> another Zelig moment. Yes. Another Zelig yes. moment. Russell Russell introducing water skiing to the <laughs> to the Adriatic in 1925. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's one of those funny things where you're doing these bizarre bits of research that lead you down the rabbit hole of the internet, and then you come across some little snippet of an article somewhere about somebody, you know, getting up on water skis off in Lake Superior or whatever it was. I can't even remember now. And I thought, well, if they can do it in America, why, why not there? So, so yeah. And, but of course you, you, it takes a while for the actual equipment to, to reach because it's a different kind of ski. You really need a little more square footage on your ski than you do for Alpine skiing. So that, the, the thought of trying to trying to drop down on alpine skis on salt water I thought was vastly amusing <laughs> now uh, one of the things that this book made me think was that Mycroft is involved and uh, it never occurred to me and I don't know if there's more to even existed at the time he created the character Mycroft I think Mycroft Spycraft, mm -hmm. and boy, they are there. Mycroft is is always he's always busy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, there um, by by nineteen twenty five, you had both MI five and MI six. MI five mm. is the domestic, and MI six is international. Um, and <clears throat> the the use of a single initial for the head of MI six had long been established. So um, you know, the idea of Mycroft signing his name as M. <laughs> Um, it's not <laughs> accidental. <laughs> yeah. The original um, Conan Doyle story that refers to that is um, Mycroft says something about that he is um, a minor functionary in the British government, and Holmes remarks, uh, sometimes he is the British government. <laughs> so he, he is, a, on the one hand, he, he is an accountant, and on the other hand, he accounts for a great deal more than just money. The plotting in this book is really wonderful. There are so many great plot points, and most of which I don't want to give away, but there, there's a really fun one. So talk about just, um, did, did that kind of plotting, did that, uh, was that a happy accident as you were 
plowing, uh, being towed by the plot through the book or... <laughs> Ski skiing madly or crashing. Skiing <laughs> madly or did it, did it happen just as... Uh, was that always in your brain or... Well, I... I think I think that the initial impetus there was um, was the island of Poveglia. Uh, yeah, I would. There, yeah, there are actually three island, two yeah. islands of the Mad, and a third of the Cult. Yeah, yeah. There's and Poveglia is uh, what a great uh, discovery that is. It is, and you, the Did fellow, you visit it? It's not it's not visitable and officially. I mean, mm. you have to you have to find somebody who's willing to take you there. But um, that which various people have. If you do online searches, you can see. Uh, there's a very interesting online article written by um, Ransom Briggs, a guy who wrote Miss Peregrine. Mm. He went to Povelia and took a lot of photographs for. I th think it was. Um, Atlas Obscura, their blog, mm -hmm. and um, it it was indeed um, a quarantine island that a lot of people died on because when you're quarantined with a bunch of ill people, <laughs> you, you tend to have a lot of dead people. Um, and surprise. and it's a little teeny island, so you know they'd sort of have provisions that they toss over to them and then let them get on, and whoever survived, they'd, they'd take them off eventually. But um, yeah, there were when I when I was planning my trip to Venice, I knew that this place existed, and I also knew that there was a a, a madhouse island and had been from the time of um, that that Lord Byron was there. But that was San Servolo, and San Servolo now has a really fine um, manicomio museum. So I made an appointment to go out there, and you know, a guide showed me around, and it's a really great place. And I then discovered that there was not, not the one, but there were actually two madhouse islands um, in, in the Venice Lagoon. One of them, that San Servolo was for men, and um, San Clemente was for the women. And then discovered that um, one of the women there had been Benito Mussolini's first wife, <laughs> who was not a convenient person, and so he just put her there. So here, here I am with this richness of <laughs> islands of the mad out in the Venice Lagoon, and I thought, I can do something with this. <laughs> and indeed you did. The new novel by Laurie R. King is Island of the Mad. Thank you for speaking with me, Lori. It's been a joy. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.